I'm sure most of you know Christianity was birthed in the ancient Roman Empire. It shouldn't have been a problem for the Christians because the Romans were quite tolerant of many and varied religious groups. Adding one more into the mix, it should have been no big deal. The Romans allowed conquered peoples to keep their own religious traditions and practices so long as they added into the worship of the Roman gods and the emperor as well. And most pagan nations were happy to oblige. But this helps explain why the Christians didn't fit in. They were known for strictly refusing any demand to worship other gods. They had left the Roman pantheon behind. And furthermore, at the time, it was common for Romans to say, Caesar is Lord. Many of the Caesars set themselves up as a divine man worthy of worship, but the Christians likewise notoriously refused emperor worship and instead proclaimed Christ is Lord. And that didn't sit well with the Romans. And so while the Romans tolerated dozens of little religious groups, the Christians would not be one of them. And persecution of Christians began not long after the church began. Now, when you think of Christian persecution in the ancient Roman Empire, you probably think of the times of great martyrdom, like when Nero called the Roman or the Christian population in Rome. In reality, though, the, you know, throughout the vast Roman Empire over the first 300 years, it's not like Christians were being killed every single day all over. Instead, the lion's share of persecution during this time was social persecution, and most of it came in the form of slander. You may not think of slander as that big of a deal, but when serious false allegations are brought against you, it can come with serious social consequences. It was through slander that Christians lost their reputation, their property, their homes. Long before Christians were killed with the sword, they were killed with the word. And don't underestimate the power of slander to assassinate someone's character. What kind of slander was used against these ancient Christians? Well, for turning their back on the Roman gods and the emperor, they were labeled as basically enemies of the state, traitors. Even though Christians were very submissive to the government and peaceful, well, still, they were made out to be antisocial, anti-Rome. Furthermore, Christians were seen as disruptive to society. They didn't abide by the gender and class distinctions of the Roman Empire. You know, all ages and ranks and sexes were admitted into these new churches and seen as equal. Male and female, rich and poor, free and slave, they all were one in this new thing called the church. They even called one another brother and sister. This is a famous sticking point for the Romans. They just could not understand the familial relationship of the church. And for this reason, they slandered Christians, accusing them of incest. Later, as Christians moved out of the public eye and started meeting in secret, the rumor mill was fueled. And the slander continued against Christians. They were accused of outrageous crimes, chief of which was cannibalism. This slander arose as a misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the Lord's Supper where Christians were said to gather to partake of the body and the blood of their master. You know, this widespread slander against Christianity, it's it's actually recorded and reflected in the New Testament. Like I said, long before Christians were being killed for their faith, they were being slandered for their faith. And very quickly did this slander spread. The end of the book of Acts, for example, you have Paul, he's in prison in Rome for the first time. 
But he's able to gain an audience among the leading Jews of the city. They had not heard of Paul yet, but they had heard of Christianity. And they say this to him, Acts 28, 22. They say, we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. It's not even been 30 years since the, since the death of Christ. And already this new church is being spoken against everywhere. Slander spreads like wildfire. The apostle Peter knew this. And so in 1 Peter, as he writes to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, he includes several admonitions about how they must respond to slander. It's going to happen. They will be slandered. But in response, 1 Peter 2.12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter knew that they were going to be slandered as evildoers. Misunderstandings, misrepresentations, and, and outright false allegations against their faith, they're going to be slandered. You can't control that, but you can control your behavior. So live righteously before God. He will judge. Also, 1 Peter 3.16, he says, Keep a good conscience, so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. Now, as these pagans were coming to faith in Christ, they would forsake their old way of life. They would turn from drunkenness, immorality, idolatry. And for this, the rest of the world slandered them. That can't be helped. But Peter urges them to just maintain a good conscience. You're on the right course. Just keep it up. Again, trust God to judge. This still goes on today. And so Christians need to continue to heed this counsel. In America, Christians are not being killed for their faith, but slander is on the rise. So you would do well to know that such slander from the world is expected, right? But it's, it's expected. And make sure you rightly respond. Keep good behavior. Keep a good conscience. Now, all this being said, do you know what should not be expected? You should not expect that such slander against Christians would come from within the church. Right? In other words, you should not expect that Christians would be the one would be the ones to viciously slander and tear down other Christians. I mean, that's that's something we expect from the world, but not from the church. I mean, the church is the family of God. We really are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're on the same team. We're fighting the same fight. We serve the same master. I mean, never should we speak evil of one another. But although this should not be the case, oftentimes it is. And although we shouldn't have to expect that we would be slandered by other Christians, well, it happens so much that, well, in a way, we, we do expect it. A pastor friend of mine recently told me about his church split experience. His church was pretty weak and shallow. Many of them, he, he, feel, he felt, didn't really have a, a true love for the Lord or the Word and his pastor knew his church needed to be reformed and brought along biblically, and he was going to do so by just faithfully preaching the word. Week in, week out, he's going to preach Christ, preach the gospel, and let the church change. But he found intense 
opposition, not from the liberal culture outside the church, but from fellow Christians inside the church. People pushed back against some of the changes the leadership was making. Why? Not because they were unbiblical, but because they were breaking with their, their traditions, the way things were always done. Furthermore, some people in this church literally told the pastor that he preached Christ too much. Literally, too much Christ. They told him too much Bible, used the Bible too much. I would say that's a compliment, but this group of people was very disgruntled because they were losing control of the church, which to them was really nothing more than a social club. So over time, this contentious group started to slander the leadership. They spread false accusations against the pastor and elders. Thankfully, my friend's children were young during this time, so they don't remember any of this, but some seriously nasty things were said about the pastor and his family. This contentious group also wrote slanderous letters and disseminated them among the church members trying to win others to their side. And their speech in these letters was often filled with vile and just outright profane language. The leadership resolved not to fight fire with fire. They weren't going to fight slander with slander, even though they were being cut left and right with words. The opposition got so frustrated, though, that on a couple of occasions, they literally stormed the pulpit to try and grab the mic to make some sort of meeting, vote the leaders out. I think it was congregational at the time. And one time, one of the leaders was actually punched in the nose and had a bloody nose. This is all a true story, by the way. The members of this small but contentious group were clearly self-willed and ungodly. They refused to repent of their slander and divisiveness and just wickedness. So in time, they were all disciplined out of the church. All this took place over the course of several years. It was a time of heartache and hardship for the leadership, as you can imagine. But in all honesty... The church is so much better off now that, in a way, you might say that the cancer has been removed and really ungodly people have departed. The point I'm making, though, is this is the type of slander and opposition we expect from the world, not the church. I mean, the world, they hate our master. They're going to hate us. We can, we can live with that. But we don't expect this from the church. It catches us by surprise. Like, I thought we're on the same team. We may have some disagreements, but can't we like discuss those in love and, and peace? But often the vilest slander comes from within. It shouldn't be this way, but sadly, oftentimes it is. Part of the problem is false believers in the church. Where Christ himself said there would always be goats among the sheep. There's always going to be self-willed, self-serving individuals in the church who don't really follow Christ, they're going to cause trouble. And sometimes, though, even genuine believers just fall prey to the flesh as they slander others out of jealousy or envy or pride. They use their tongue to tear down the brethren. This is its own problem, and this, too, is nothing new. In fact, when you actually read the New Testament, we learn about slander coming from inside the church before we learn about slander coming outside the church. And that's what we find actually in our passage for this morning. This has all been kind of a long-winded introduction, but it really sets up the short but important passage we have for this morning 
And that's found in James chapter 4. So you can finally now open your Bibles to James chapter 4. And it's here in James 4 that we learn that this type of slander was taking place inside the church. Brother against brother. Don't forget, James was likely the first book of the New Testament written. So this reflects Christianity in its earliest form. Yet the flesh was getting the best of some of these young believers, leading them to lash out with the tongue. Such evil speech is a serious problem, and it comes with serious consequences. And so James writes to just to call it out, like he does with so many issues. Our passage for today, chapter 4, 11 through 12, it really, in many ways, finishes a section that began in chapter 3. Now, here's the picture we can put together. At the time, these scattered Christians were being overly influenced by the world, worldly wisdom, worldly beliefs, worldly values were infiltrating the church. And this led many in the church down a path of jealousy and selfish ambition, just the ways of the world. They were not united together in serving Christ, but divided in serving self. And they were feeding the flesh by ingesting the wisdom of the world. And this was bearing the fruit of selfishness and quarrels and conflicts. Like James says in chapter 4, verse 4, this type of friendship with the world is going to mean hostility with God. And of course, that's going to lead to hostility with one another. What's the solution to this? Well, as James says in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, that was our passage last time, although it's it's kind of been a while, but the solution is to repent and return. Through a series of rapid-fire commands, James admonishes the church to repent of their sinful deeds and desires, turn away from their worldliness, and return to God. They need to, verse 8, chapter 4, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. God gives grace for them to grow and to overcome, to be united in peace and love, but, but that grace is only given to the humble, not the proud. So they must humble themselves before the Lord, verse 10. Repent, return. He will lift them up. Overall, we get the picture of an early church in conflict, driven by worldly selfishness. But Christ leads us in a better way. It's a way of denying self, submitting ourselves to God, and then following Christ. And along this way, there's peace, there's righteousness, where we really are brothers and sisters. We're on the same team. We can't lose sight of that way. But with this in mind, though, after, after wrapping that up, James comes back in verses 11 and 12, and we just kind of tacks on one more admonition, specifically against slander. Given everything James said about the sins of the tongue in chapter 3, it's very clear that as these early Christians were coming into conflict with one another, they were using the tongue as the weapon of choice for for battle. But God hates such evil speech and we need to be warned against it. It still goes on. And so this is a message we too need to heed. The passage is short, but worthwhile. 
And so let's read it now. James 4, look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This passage, this passage is actually rather simple. It consists of one command and two reasons. The command is as simple as can be. Verse 11, do not speak against one another. Kataleo is the word it literally means speak against Used in a negative sense means speak against another, to defame, to slander. And such evil speech comes from a harsh, critical spirit. This is derogatory speech that's intended to turn others against a person. Jameson adds this command, the word brethren. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Making clear he's, he's talking to the church. And also making clear, this was you know, almost certainly taking place in the church. Such harsh criticism and slander was the main way their quarrels and conflicts were being expressed. And furthermore, this command here, it's in the present, indicating this was likely an ongoing issue. Slander is a way to do battle without weapons. You can defeat a rival and promote self, all just by killing someone in the court of public opinion. It doesn't really matter if they're wrong or in the wrong. So long as people think they're wrong, you win. At the same time, I think a lot of people excuse their words of harsh criticism because what they have to say is true. Or at least it seems true. And then a person feels like they have a moral obligation to, to expose someone's dirty laundry to talk down about them. You know, they're justified in their slander because like, well, it's true. I mean, let's say you're talking to someone after church and you learn that they've got no plans for the rest of the day. Their, their schedule is totally clear. A little bit later, you overhear them talking to someone else and someone's come up to them asking for help. He's going to move later that day and he asks this person, can you help me move after church? And you overhear this other person say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. My schedule is filled up. Uh, I've got appointments throughout the day. I wish I could help you, but, but I can't. Now, you know that's not true. You know their schedule is clear. They, they're just lying because they wanted to get out of helping that person move. At this point, though, how would you respond? Maybe this is someone you, you don't really like, and you'd be happy to see them taking down a few notches. So you decide to spread the word. You tell others, like, did you just hear that so-and-so is a total liar? He just lied to get out of helping someone at church. Who would do that? What a terrible person. And granted, this might be more along the lines of gossip at this point, but the lines between slander and gossip blur. And so you just go around letting people know, like, this person is not to be trusted. Does that sound like a, a right response to you or a righteous response to you. And such a response does not come from righteous motives. You're not trying to build this person up or help him. You're not even trying to show him his sin. You're only concerned about 
asserting yourself. It only comes from evil motives. And when such evil motives find expression in evil speech, nothing good results. Brothers are torn down. The church is divided. There are countless examples of this, of what James calls speaking against one another. The church is to be a family where we love one another, we support one another, we protect, we help, we build up. And even if someone is caught in a trespass, we restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1 says. We have their best interests in mind, not jealousy, not selfish ambition, just their own best interests. In all this slander, this speaking against the brethren, it's a serious sin before the Lord. All the sins of the tongue are problematic, but especially slander, false witness, tearing brothers apart. These are sins that the Lord hates. That's what Proverbs 6 says, by the way. Remember that passage where the Lord says there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, even seven which are an abomination to him. And it finishes that list by saying this, Proverbs 6.19, things God hates a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. And James could have just quoted this verse and rested his case. Speaking against brothers in the church like this doesn't belong. But James chooses to give a couple reasons of his own. And so we find next, after the command, two reasons. We might say two reasons why the sin of slander should be expelled from your vocabulary. Two reasons the sin of slander should be expelled from your vocabulary. Let's, let's cover these first. When you slander, you exalt yourself above the law. When you slander, you exalt yourself above the law. Look again at verse 11. He says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. The first reason James gives why slander is such a serious sin is that when you slander, you are in effect exalting yourself above the law. By speaking against a brother or judging a brother, you are, in effect, sitting in judgment of God's law. Now, you'll notice James adds the term here, judges. Not just speak against, but he says also judges, to judge your brother. In addition to slander comes judgmental speech. This word, krino, followed by the accusative, it really means to condemn. It pictures one sitting as judge, jury, and executioner over A fellow believer out of typically jealousy, envy, or strife. Now, as a quick side note here, there is, of course, a place of judgment in the church. We're called to deal with our fellow brothers when they get caught up in a sin. And some have the opinion that, you know, we must never judge. Only God can judge. And so maybe they see someone in the church, maybe a young man living in immorality with his girlfriend, but they say like, well, you know, What can I say? Who am I to judge? But this is not the type of judgment James is forbidding. 
To the contrary, Scripture explicitly commands us to admonish and rebuke the sinning brother, not to condemn them, but to restore them. In fact, making such a judgment or evaluation is the most loving thing you can do. It would be far worse to, to see someone caught up in sin and just to do nothing about it, to say nothing about it. And the word has a lot to say about that. But again, this is not the type of judgment James is referring to here. He's not trying to eliminate courts or judges. He's trying to eliminate evil speech. This, we might say, is the sin of judgmentalism, which is harsh, critical speech that seeks to tear others down and and just heap up condemnation on them. Such judgmentalism almost always comes from a spirit of self-righteousness and pride. It's often the bedfellow of slander. You know, imagine one day you're talking to a little group of friends after church, and a small, dainty morsel of gossip escapes your lips. You didn't really mean to, but you fall into some serious gossip about a fellow believer. You are speaking out against someone at the church. It's not really coming from a place of love. To God, this is sin. Now, afterwards, a fellow believer comes up to you alone, one-on-one, and very gently and graciously tells you this. And he says, you know what you said back there? Scripture would say that's gossip. And it wasn't loving to the person you were talking about. And I know you didn't really mean them harm. But at the same time, it's, it's sin before the Lord. And I think you should really consider what you said and, and repent before the Lord. This fellow believer approaches you in love. They've got your best interests in mind. They just want to help you, you know, see a sin that escaped your lips and, and resolve and repent and return. So if that happened to you, how would you respond? How would you, how would you take that? I hope you would receive such an exhortation well. Because according to Scripture, this is what we are to do. Like James said back in chapter 3, like we all stumble in many ways. It's just a matter of time. And I would sure hope someone would deal with me like that and, and approach me graciously to help restore me when I stumble. I mean, isn't that what you want? But that being said, that's not the picture of speech we get here in James 4. That, that's not what was going on in these churches. Instead, picture a fellow believer that they hear you speak that little word of gossip. And, and then they come up to you to just tear into you. This person approaches you not to gently restore, but to harshly condemn. He tears you down. He calls you name. He slanders you. In self-righteousness, his only goal is to heap up burning coals on your head just to make you feel bad. He says, you know, you should be ashamed. I can't believe you, you gossip like that. You're, you're such a sinner, so unrighteous. This is more along the lines of the type of unloving judgmentalism that, that James is speaking about here. And when you get like this, what James is saying is, although you may not realize it, you're really judging the law. You're slandering and sitting in judgment of the law of God. And the irony here is, typically when a person slanders, they usually think they're upholding God's law. And hey, God's law says gossip is a sin. Now, I heard you gossip, so now I'm justified to cut you down with words. This person's acting as judge, jury, and executioner. But 
by his own unloving speech, he himself is now in violation of the law of God. This is the same type of hypocritical judgment that Christ rebuked the Pharisees for. You remember Matthew 7, 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, we're going to see someone caught in sin. They're going to have a speck in their eye. And it's important for us to help them take the speck out of their eye, to help them deal with their sin. We, we need to do that. But you've got to deal with yourself first. When you judge, though, with hypocrisy or cruelty or, or especially slander, well, you've just found yourself now to have a huge log in your eye, a telephone pole sticking out of your eye. You're now in violation of the law yourself. Now, what law exactly is James talking about? No doubt he's thinking of the royal law, the law of love. This is none other than the law of Christ, which has as its chief commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. James himself referenced this royal law back in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. Furthermore, you know, that command comes from the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. And in the same context, just two verses before, there's a command against slander. Leviticus 19, 16 says, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. And no doubt these thoughts were swirling around in James's mind. The sins of slander and self-righteous judgmentalism, they violate the law of love. You're not loving your neighbor like yourself when you, when you do that. According to James in verse 11, he says, This then makes you a judge of the law. He says, if you judge your brother like this, you're really judging the law. And then he says, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge of it. You may wonder, how does James go from judging a fellow believer to now judging the law? It's it's simple, actually. To James, violating God's law is the same as judging it. Where you're, in effect, by your deeds, sitting in judgment of the law. Like, it doesn't really apply to you. You're not bound by that standard. You're... You're above the law. Maybe with your words, you confess a high view of God's law. You love God's law. But as you yourself violate it, you show otherwise. You despise this law of love. You're, you're not a doer of it. And your actions, you, you show otherwise. This is a precarious place to be, exalting yourself above the law of God like this. And that's because you and I, we're, we're sinners too. And we, we violate that law all the time. As Romans chapter 2 verse 3 says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, when we violate the same standards that we enforce, that we judge others for doing, and we're without excuse. We are actually just heaping condemnation on ourselves. Instead, 
Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You know, the truth is we're all guilty sinners. We've all violated God's law. We're all rebels, all deserving of judgment. And he is a righteous judge. But God, in his love and his kindness, sent Christ to die for us, to take away our guilt, our shame, to pay our penalty for all of our violation in our place. And so instead of receiving judgment, which we deserve in Christ, in God's kindness, what do we receive? Patience, mercy, grace, forgiveness. This is what you have received in Christ, is it not? And so the point is, especially now toward your fellow brother and sister, you should extend to them the same kindness, the same patience, the same mercy and grace. We should deal patiently with one another, not speaking evil of them or slandering them or condemning them. And said, like Christ, we should stoop down to them to help them, to lift them up. This may involve help. This may involve rebuke, but it will always involve love. You know, heed this warning. Listen to Galatians 5, 13 through 15. There Paul tells them, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Maybe that last verse there bewilders you, like, what does that mean? But in that last verse, Paul graphically pictures these believers in the church like a pack of wild animals, and they're biting and devouring one another with their words. But he says, be careful, because if that goes on too long unchecked, the church will be consumed like prey. And there'll be nothing left but bones. And the solution is, well, through love, serve one another. You have to deny the jealousy, envy, and selfish ambition that leads you to slander a brother. And then you must replace these with loving service. Add in some edifying speech, and then you'll watch as God grows the church in unity and love. This is the way to go. For now, though, let's finish by considering, though, that the second reason James gives for why the sin of slander should be expelled from your vocabulary. The second reason. First, when you slander, you exalt yourself above the law. Secondly, now, when you slander, you exalt yourself above God. And so look at verse 12. He says next, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's a sad but common occurrence these days for some young actor get their start on the Disney Channel. They're pumping out pretty relatively clean content and character. But then they grow up, and you know what happens. They turn to the dark side, 
They go off the deep end into sin and they try desperately to ditch their clean image. And inevitably they defend their new lifestyle to their critics. And they say this, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. You see, they're comfortable with their new lifestyle and only God is their judge. So, So who are you to judge? That's what they mean. Whenever I hear this, I think, you know, woe unto those who unwittingly invoke God's judgment upon themselves. In a sense, though, they're right. Only God can judge them, but, and he will. What they fail to realize, though, is even though they've killed their conscience and no longer mourn over their sin, God still sees it, and he's not mocked. And he will judge. And on that day, none outside Christ will stand. Like James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. God really is the judge and the jury and the executioner. He's the one who wrote the laws. He's the lawgiver. He made it. He sets the standard for human behavior based on his own character and virtues. Being creator, he has the right to do so. And then he's the one to enforce these laws, to enforce his standard of righteousness. And likewise, it is only right for him to do so. The point is, though, that the place of judgment is God's place. He alone is able to save and to destroy, being all-powerful and all-knowing. He's the only one qualified to do this. It's just like 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, it says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. That's not something we can do, right? When you judge others, you don't really see what's going on in their heart. You don't see the motives of their heart. We judge just externally, but God looks at the heart. But it's this ignorance that disqualifies us from being the judge. It's not our place. But when you usurp God's role, and you sit down on his judgment seat, well, you exalt yourself above God. God has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. That's what he said. God has that power. Do you have that power? No, you don't. But when you act like you do, it's both arrogant and blasphemous. Again, this doesn't prohibit us from speaking against sin. We must Scripture commands that. We're going to say what the Bible says. And we'll do so in love. Precisely because we know that God is able to destroy, but he's also able to save. As Jesus himself taught, there is a heaven and there is a hell. There's a place of joy, of basking forever in the glory of God. But there's also a place of punishment, of, of separation from the glory of God. And we all deserve the latter. The lawgiver and the judge would do no wrong in sending all of us there. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know, he gives us a job now. It's our role for those of us who have received that saving love to be his ambassadors. We're not in control of who gets saved, but we are called to reflect the love of Christ, to share his gospel, that others may at least know the way. 
But you see, you can't do that with sinful speech. You're going to have to use your words better. We have a ministry, 2 Corinthians 5 says. It's a ministry of reconciliation. But those around us, they're not going to be reconciled to Christ through words of slander or harsh criticism. They're only going to be reconciled through words of life. So speak words of life. In a spirit of self-righteousness, it's just antithetical to having received mercy and forgiveness from the Lord. I mean, the, the person like that, who are you? Who do you think you are? Do you think you deserved God's forgiveness and eternal life? Do, do you think you saved yourself? When you truly recognize your bankruptcy before God, how undeserving you were of, of all of his kindness and mercy and grace, it has a humbling effect and that humility, like James said back in verse 10, it's going to lead you to treat others accordingly. And that is with the same grace. You're not to be like the cherubim who are stationed outside the Garden of Eden where you pick up a flaming sword and you, you cut down anyone who comes near the tree of life. That's, that's not for you. Some Christians act like this with their tongue. You would think they'd be happy if no one else were ever saved. But instead, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is how God wants us to use our speech. To beg, to reconcile, to build up, not to oppose or to tear down or to slander. We'll leave that to Satan. That's his job. That's his name. The devil means slanderer after all. But we have a new father now, the God of truth. So consider your tongue this morning. If needed, repent, return, and then resolve to use your speech to to speak words of life. As you do so, the church will find what God promised, unity peace, and a powerful witness to the world of what the love of Christ really does. For we are brothers and sisters, and it's by our love for one another that the world will know that God truly sent the Christ. And let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we we bow before you and, and praise your name this morning. You're the God of truth, and by your words, you literally have spoken life. By your word, you spoke this world into existence. By your word, you sent the living word to save us. By your word, you you speak new life into our hearts. You you raise the dead with but a word. And that's us, Lord, those in Christ. We've been risen from the dead. We've been called out of the world to serve Christ, our Lord, our head. We've been placed in a body. We have now a new family, brothers and sisters who've likewise been redeemed We're all undeserving. We all come on on equal ground. There's level ground at the foot of the cross, Lord. And this is meant to bind us together. But Lord, sometimes the ways of the world and and the the values of the world get back into our hearts and lead us to oppose one another, to tear down, to assert ourselves. And Lord, sometimes I think we're all guilty of using our speech to do so. Like James says, we all stumble in many ways. 
We thank you, Lord. You're, you're still a God who forgives. You cleanse, you restore, and, and may we always repent and return to you. And then resolve this morning, this, this new year, just to, to be different, to use our words better, to, to build up. We have a power with speech, a gift. May we use it to build the church up, to speak words of life and truth, to share Christ, to worship and praise. Let us use new tongues for redeemed purposes to the growth of the body of Christ. This is your plan for us. It even impacts our mission to the world. So may this resolution ring true for us all this morning. In this, we know you'll be glorified and we will be blessed. And so we resolve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.